Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One of my favorite things to do is take a walk in the evenings. If I've had a stressful day at work, walking around my neighborhood often makes everything seem better. Growing up in eastern Kentucky meant that I heard a lot of stories about my aunts and uncles walking out of the holler in the snow to catch the school bus. And to be honest, their walk really wasn't a short one, and my mom laughs that she would often turn around and come back home when she was small instead of trekking the mile or so they had to walk to catch the bus. But my aunts and uncles also talk about how beautiful it was to walk home in the spring. My mom tells stories about one neighbor who always had cookies ready for them to grab as they walked by, and further up the holler, they would stop and drink from another neighbor's well. Walking takes me back to simpler times. Although I didn't walk a mile to catch the bus, I did have a longer walk than a lot of kids my age. But that quarter of a mile walk was time for me to tell my mom all about my day. It was time for me to decompress after a long day in high school. It allowed me to stop by my granny's house every single day until she passed away to eat a grilled cheese and just laugh with her. Even in college, my mom and I would take walks on the weekends to catch up and enjoy each other's company. Walking is still an escape for me. I often drag Anthony along on my walks, and even though he complains at the start, he usually enjoys it once we get going. For me, walks have a sense of safety. But how many cases have we covered where walks have been anything but safe? We've heard about kids being snatched from walking their dogs or out riding bikes with their friends. And in today's story, a daily walk turns into a nightmare for one family. When a loving mom and wife was found by the road with 40 stab wounds, was it a case of mistaken identity? A crime of opportunity? Really, what happened? This is the case of Lucinda Strange. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast. And to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Okay, before we start, Maggie, your intro is so you. Like, it is. If you guys could see what Maggie posts on her Facebook, it's like pictures of fields and like clothes hanging on the clothesline. Yes. I and things like that. Like, why can't we go back to these days? And like mm -hmm. table full of sweets, you know, yeah. like home baked goods and all this stuff. And, you know, this country living reminds me also, I have to share with you, Maggie. Some okay. conversations I've been having with our listeners on Facebook this week. I did see like, something about um, someone talked about the chicken, their chicken. Yes. So back a couple weeks ago, Sleuth Hounds, we did an episode on Kelly Brannon and she and her boyfriend had some pet chickens. And so I decided to post on Facebook, if you had chickens, what would you name them? And I had to share some of the responses some of my favorites okay um so a girl that I had gone to school with when I was younger 
Megan Lamaster Newburn. She said, my chickens have been named Dolores, Melinda, Jenny, Red, Anne, Alice, Rodrigo, Roscoe, Pearl, and Shirley. She has a lot of chickens. Yes. My cousin Rebecca, this was pretty funny, said she would name her chicken Nugget. (laughs) (laughs) But the best one, I think, came from Jordan Andrews. And she does have chickens as pets. One is named Henrietta, which is totally what I would name a chicken. But she also has one named Cluck Norris. (laughs) (laughs) That's clever. Funny. That's funny. (laughs) I know. So if I ever have a pet chicken, I think I shall name it Cluck Norris Jr. Just name the chickens at your neighbor's house. That's true. Yeah, because my neighbor has them and, you know, my stepson and daughter-in-law. So, yeah, maybe I should just name theirs. There I can you live go. vicariously through them. And not have to step in chicken poop. That's right. So, best of both worlds. Yes. Okay, back to your case, Maggie. Sorry, I just had to share. No, you're fine. So, I feel like our Kentucky listeners, um, you're going to know a lot about um, what I'm talking about, but... For our non-Kentucky natives, we may have to explain a little bit in today's case. So if you were to hop on to the Bluegrass Parkway in Kentucky and drive west, you would find what I would call the beautiful town of Bardstown. Like, I think Bardstown is just this little gorgeous town nestled, like, right in the heart of the Bluegrass. Have you been to Bardstown before? Um passing through yes Mm -hmm. but i've never visited there it is like this quaint little town but i'm sure you'll get into it um looks can be deceiving in terms of its crime history yes so bardstown is like what allison said like a unique little town um There's 11 distilleries in Bardstown, all within like 16 miles of downtown. And so for people that don't know, um, so Kentucky is like the bourbon capital of the world. And Bardstown is like, I guess, the mega center for bourbon. So that's why Mm -hmm. we've been, because Anthony loves bourbon and I like just the tours because I'm a nerd. So we've been to a few of the distilleries there, and so that's how I know it. But if you're a bourbon drinker, Bardstown is where you would want to go. And their website says, and this is kind of a long quote, um, guys, but I thought that it really summed up how you would view, yeah, how you would view Bardstown from the outside. So this came from their website. It says, with an atmosphere that seems to have magically leapt from the paintings of Norman Rockwell and the pages of Mark Twain, see for yourself why Bardstown was declared the most beautiful small town in America by USA Today. Settled in 1780, Bardstown is Kentucky's second oldest city. Throughout Nelson County, there are more than 300 buildings on the National Register of Historic Places, with nearly 200 of them located in the historic downtown district. In fact, the stagecoach stop that was built in 1779 still stands today as a tavern, restaurant, and bed and breakfast. It's not just the town structures that have stayed the same. You'll also find the friendly attitude and southern charm that can only be found in such a small town. It's a place where neighbors still borrow cups of sugar. I love that. The borrowing the cups of sugar. I do too. It's like like what you were saying, like those memories of like, you know, your mom and your aunts and uncles. I mean, that's totally something that happened in the small town where I grew up too. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you needed something, you could rely on your neighbor for it. And I also love the Norman Rockwell reference because my grandma had Norman Rockwell like plates and mugs up Uh on her mantle. And I still have some of them. Oh, I know. But I feel like that does like that description brings back so many sweet memories for us. But Like Allison said, looks can be deceiving because what their website fails to mention is the crazy amounts of unsolved murders within this small town. And by crazy, Maggie means crazy. Yes. Like, I don't 
know if it's like a curse that comes with being named like the most beautiful small town in like the United States, but like this little town is almost like it's cursed. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to briefly, just so our listeners kind of get a feel for this small town, I'm going to briefly talk about a few, and I think I talk like about maybe five or seven unsolved murders within this town. So just very, very briefly before we get in. So one unsolved murder is that of Jason Ellis. So this death literally was in shockwaves through this small community in 2013. Okay. He was a 33 year old Bardstown police officer. Um, He was a seven year veteran of the department. He was a member of the canine unit and Jason had just gotten off work and was driving home when he found like a stack of freshly cut tree limbs blocking like the road, the exit ramp that he was on, like Uh off the bluegrass parkway. Uh So he, of course, like exits his police cruiser and he's ambushed. And according to WCPO, he was fatally shot multiple times with a 12 gauge shotgun. Yeah. And and all these stories, I'm sure Maggie, that you're going to tell just like the Jason Ellis one, if you're from Kentucky, these are Mm -hmm. pretty well known and like with Jason Ellis, I'm fairly certain something had happened. He didn't have, cause like you said, he's a member of the canine unit, but he didn't have his dog with him. Right. No, he at didn't. the time. And I feel like the shots, if I remember correctly, came from like both sides of the road. So this truly was yeah. an ambush. Yeah. I think it was like his, he wasn't in his, for some reason he didn't have his canine car he was, mm-hmm. like, in a different cruiser, so the dog wasn't with him. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, like, the people were on a knoll and, like, shot him when he was on the road. So, another one is in April of 2014. So, what is that, like, a year? hmm There was another murder that, yet again, would turn Bardstown upside down, except this time it was a double homicide, with 48-year-old Kathy Netherland and her 16-year-old daughter, Samantha. This one freaks me out. Yeah. But like, it's, all these are freaky, but this one just really freaks me out. Their bodies were discovered by Kathy's father after she failed to show up at work because she was a special education teacher at Bardstown Elementary School. And... Like, according to their autopsies and a report that was on Wave 3, Kathy, the mom, had been shot multiple times while Samantha had been bludgeoned on the head, and both women showed knife wounds to their necks. Yeah, and that one creeped a lot of people out, too, because they were murdered in different ways. Mm Mm-hmm. So normally, you know, I guess, you know, if someone is there with a gun, then both victims would be shot. But there were there were different injuries. The next mystery that befell upon Bardstown was the disappearance of 35-year-old Crystal Rogers in 2015. So uh-huh. she was last seen on July 3rd at the home that she shared with her boyfriend Brooks and their two-year-old son and another child. Two days later, her mother reported her missing, and that same day, which is crazy, her car was found was found abandoned along the Bluegrass Parkway with a flat tire, but all of her belongings were still in the vehicle. So... Can I make two comments? Yeah. Number one, well, actually three comments. I lied. (laughs) Number one, Maggie and I have wanted to cover Crystal Mm -hmm. Rogers' case, and many people have suggested Crystal Rogers, Mm -hmm. but Maggie and I don't want to die. Yeah. Because of my second comment, which is the belief that all of these murders that Maggie is talking about, Sleuthhounds, people believe they are connected. Mm Mm-hmm. So these are not, in a lot of people's minds, like isolated incidents. Mm -hmm. They are all part of one ring of crime. And also, like, I wouldn't even, I mean, yes, obviously, I don't want to die. But, like, Crystal Rogers' case, Jason Ellis' case, and the double homicide case, 
and then the next one I'm going to talk about, those have all received a lot of coverage. Uh-huh. Like, they I have. mean, there's documentaries on Amazon Prime. There's probably documentaries on Netflix. There's a ton of podcasts. Um, and, like, Crystal's family has stayed super vigilant about keeping her case, like, fresh in everyone's mind almost to the point that some people, maybe not necessarily her family, but some people think it's almost borderline harassment to persons involved or possibly uh, involved in the case, you know? Um. But can I tell you the third thing that is yeah. breaking news, Maggie? Yeah? Like today. Oh. FBI went into Bardstown again to look at rental property hmm. owned by the main suspect, and they had cadaver dogs. Just saying. So, and that was literally today. Yeah, um, actually, Laura, that we worked with, you know, at the school you still teach at. She's the um, one who told me about it. She texted me. I have yet to text her back, so I need yeah. to do that. Yeah, she told me about it. She came down to my room. <laughs> this is what people know us for. All of our friends at school know yeah. our true crime obsession. Yeah. <laughs> they just feed into it. Um, so the next one we're going to talk about is Crystal's father, Tommy, was actually fatally shot in the chest by an unknown gunman while he was out hunting with his, like, 11-year-old grandson on their family property. So they obviously have ruled his death a homicide. We do not know who is responsible for that. But as Allison mentioned, a lot of people believe all of these cases are linked. Mm-hmm. Some lesser-known ones is in April of 2000, Kent Harlan Harden, which was so hard for me to say, <laughs> um, was discovered in a wooded area, and he had been murdered. There was a man named George Lawless. Mm -hmm. Look at me. And he was bludgeoned <laughs> to death on November 14th of 1991 in this small town. So, I mean, just right there was like seven unsolved cases within the most beautiful town in America, Bardstown, Kentucky. Yeah. So the most beautiful and the most brutal. Yeah. In America. Yeah. And like Allison said, I feel like a lot of people know some of the cases that I just listed, but many people have either forgotten or don't know about Lucinda Strange. And that is the center of today's episode. Well, I'll be the first to say I've never heard of Lucinda's case, so... Well, her case, her, you know, staying, like, right on par is also very graphic. Oh. So, Lucinda and her husband, Jeremy, moved to Nelson County in 1983, and they wanted to live on, like, a small, like, they wanted, like, a little farm. So, they moved on to, like, a small 10-acre farm. Which, that's pretty small for a farm. Yeah, yeah. And in every source that I read, it appeared that they were, like, truly happy in this home that they had built together at 129 Clarktown Road in Bardstown with their son and their daughter. In the months and years that followed their move to Nelson County, the family quickly settled into their lives in Bardstown. So Lucinda began working as a hostess at the Holiday Inn. And as a way to decompress, she started taking daily afternoon walks. So, you know, to kind of relax after work, as mm -hmm. well as get some exercise in. Okay. One report I read said that even though Lucinda got home from work a little late on March 25th, 1990. So that's when our story takes place. Um, because she had like a training at work. She still was determined to get her daily walk in. And I read also that, like, it didn't matter if she got home from work at 2.30 in the morning or 2.30 in the afternoon or, like, 10 o'clock at night. She was going to get her walk in for the day. Like, she walked so, every day. She's dedicated. I mean, that is dedication. But mm -hmm. I think at some point I'd be like, oh, well, I've missed my window. Yeah, well, I, I applaud her because I literally had six Oreos dipped in milk for dinner today. So, you know. <laughs> You go, Lucinda. <laughs> Reports say that on this particular day, on the 25th, Lucinda left her house at around 7.10 p.m. 
and her husband recalled in an interview with WDRB, quote, she said, I'm going to walk now and walked out the door. Okay. So okay. normal. After Lucinda left, Jeremy recalls sitting down to watch some TV on the couch and drifting off to sleep. So this is more Maggie, right? Yeah. It's more Allison too. <laughs> like I'll be the one sitting on the couch. Take a little nappy nap. That's right. And I actually, Allison, do you remember like a time in your life like that? This brought back some, like it unlocked some memories for me. <laughs> like when you would sit down as a child to watch a movie with like your mom or your grandma and like you would make them promise, like swear to me, you will not fall asleep. And oh, they would yeah. be like, oh, I swear, I swear I won't fall asleep. And then like the next thing you know, like they're snoring on the couch while Dorothy's dropping a house on the Wicked Witch. Like, oh, first of all, so glad you made a Wizard of Oz reference <laughs> because that is Sleuthhound. It's our favorite movie, both yes. of us. So it's a bond. Yeah. Um, and our husbands get mad because we recite literally every single word. I mean, and I me. can like spit it out right now. Yeah. Um, but yes, I totally remember that. And now I feel like I'm the one making those empty promises. Yeah. Like literally, Anthony was like, because I'm like the person I I like to, if I'm going to watch a movie and it's like later at night, like I want to cuddle down in bed and watch the movie. Yeah. So Anthony is opposite. Like he wants to be like in the living room if we're watching TV or whatever. And so he was like, do you want to go into the bedroom and watch a movie? And I was like, sure. And so like he even let me pick the movie. And so I picked like, um, God, I can't even remember now. That's how tired I was. <laughs> what's the one where he goes to like the oh like the museum comes to life not at the museum night at, night at the museum yeah yeah so i picked that one and like we sat down or laid down to watch the movie and i was literally out cold in 10 minutes oh yeah i mean i can be wide awake out. talking and like two seconds later yeah. out same <laughs> so that's what happened to jeremy and when he wakes up it's about an hour later and Lucinda still wasn't home. So, like, if you're a slow walker, you can walk, like, a mile in an hour. So, I feel like that, like, she would had been gone for a while. I was going to ask, like, how long her normal walks were. But I you guess know, that's I something we might not know. Yeah, I, I did not read anywhere, like, where it said how long her normal walks were. But I'm assuming mm -hmm. they weren't an hour because he was concerned when he woke up. Okay. And what happened next was something that no one would have really ever expected to happen. He said, so about an hour later when he woke up, it was to someone knocking on his door. And oh. when he, which is weird. And when he pulled the door open, it was his neighbor. And he heard his neighbor say, quote, there's somebody down here along the side of the road. What? Yes. And okay, so, that's a weird comment to make. Yeah. Like there is somebody first of all why didn't the, if the neighbor saw somebody along the side of the road why didn't the neighbor check to see who it was and well, if the neighbor knows who it is why would the neighbor say somebody i think the somebody may have been not to cause so much alarm in jeremy's house because his kid or his daughter at least is home at the time so i think then why wouldn't the neighbor just be like hey hey jeremy come outside with me for a second yeah, there's another weird oddity about that that I'm going to bring up towards the end. And you're going to ask more questions oh, that we don't no. have answers to. Okay. So as this driver was passing by um, Jeremy and Lucinda's house, he saw something in the ditch just about 150 yards away from the strange family home. So that's when he stops and a 911 call goes out at about 9 p.m., and Jeremy supposedly, according to everything I've read, ran the short distance to see who was lying in the ditch. And, you know, we've all talked about that small voice in our head when the world's going to crap and you're that mm -hmm. still there's that voice in your head that's like, no, everything's fine. Everything you're fine. Right, everything's fine. Be. Yeah, it can't be this bad. And so I'm sure sure that Jeremy was battling that. You know, mm -hmm. trying to ignore that gnawing feeling and reassure himself. But the situation that he ran up to was literally anything but fine. His worst fears had been confirmed. Because lying in that ditch, just a mere 150 yards from Jeremy's front door, was Lucinda. 
with her earphones and radio laying close by her. So wow. in so that in an, in and of itself is heart shattering. What Could they tell like what had happened? Well, that's part of the problem. Oh. Yeah. And I'll, we'll talk about that too. Okay. Okay. So in an even more heartbreaking scene that I read, Jeremy describes that his 16-year-old daughter came running after him when he oh. ran and, you know, I guess just to see what was happening and in an effort to protect her from, like, seeing such a devastating state, he actually took his jacket off and covered up the crumpled and bleeding mother so oh, she no. wouldn't have to see the body. I mean, I understand why he did, but that's not what you do. Oh, that's not even what I said we were going to talk about that happened to this scene. Oh my gosh. Like he, instead, he needs to run over to his daughter and move her away. But they don't need to be touching anything or covering anything up because that contaminates. Well, sadly, Allison, Lucinda's death is initially ruled a hit and run. So because of this conclusion, oh. her body was moved. Maggie. Yes. Oh, so all, basically all potential evidence that they could have gotten then is gone because well, they did that. Yeah, it does really hamper the crime scene. And in the Kentucky Standard, it said, quote, It was initially reported when they found her as a hit and run, so she was moved. The coroner came, pronounced her dead, and she was moved, said Nelson County sheriff stephen campbell and campbell at the time was a kentucky state police detective and his role in lucinda's case would soon become much more important wow so at this point at the beginning mm -hmm. she doesn't come home the neighbor sees her calls 911 then goes get to get mm -hmm. jeremy to bring him down they see her and they the police come the coroner comes and they basically say it appears to be a hit and run i think what actually happened was the neighbor saw her went to see jeremy the 911 call came in the coroner comes she's pronounced dead it's a hit and run and they move her body okay so the 911 call comes after jeremy's told someone's in the ditch okay yeah so the coroner at the time was sunny greenwell and he's actually who made the disturbing discovery that we're going to talk about. And it's at that time Campbell is assigned to Lucinda's case because I'm like, I don't know that we fully grasp the magnitude of what happened to Lucinda, mm -hmm. but she was stabbed 40 times. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. My initial question is how she could, if the crime occurred right at the spot where she was found, which mm -hmm. I don't know if we know that or not, or if that was in any of the research, but if she's only 150 yards from the house, why did no one hear screaming? Well, I'm assuming that, well, obviously that it's not like, you know, subdivision like mine or even yours, right? Because they remember they live on a 10 acre farm. Oh, okay. So it's not like they have houses a couple hundred feet away from them. So that's, I I'm guess. Assuming. So the fact that, you know, a neighbor even was driving by and saw her when he did. Right. And I mean, I know like when we looked to build, when we were thinking about building, like we looked at a subdivision in Georgetown and it was kind of like that. Like all the lots were like five to 10 acres. So it was still in a subdivision, but the lots were like bigger than your typical like acre less subdivision you get in central Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe they still lived in a neighborhood, but it would have been like a larger neighborhood. Okay. But stabbed 40 times. Yeah. And she was actually like one of her cuts was so deep that it like, gashed the corner of her mouth <gasps> and i also read that she was dealt a severe blow to the back of her head i don't know if it was like by maybe the other end of the 
murder weapon, but yeah, I read that there was a severe blow to the back of her head. There were also several defense wounds on Lucinda's body showing that she tried to fight off the attacker. So I'm really honestly not sure like how this was confused as a hit and run, even for the short amount of time that it was, but it apparently was. I would think that even visually the wounds would look completely different. Right. I mean, maybe she was just so, like, this is graphic, but maybe she was just so bloody. Oh. Like, hell at the time, maybe. Yeah. That makes sense. Because initially, like, I mean, essentially, she bled out, right? Like, 150 right. yards from her house. Right. Jeremy wow. talks about, and this I think is also just really sad, but talks about driving to Berea, which, again, is not super far away from Bardstown, another like central Kentucky, super tiny mm-hmm. town. Um, and actually the uh, place of the very first episode, Allison and I ever did Brooklyn farthing. That's right. Um, but he drove there to tell his 21 year old son, Travis, that his mother was hit by a car. And he said in an interview, I can't remember whether they told me right then or later on that morning that they told me she'd been stabbed to death. It was like I had to tell my kids twice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which I had not thought about when I was initially researching the case. But then, right. like, when I found Fred that, it would be like that. I mean, you're initially telling them their mom was hit by a car, and now you're saying, no, she was murdered. And like that, I feel death. like how you process that's completely different. Like, the mm-hmm. first, obviously, both are traumatic. Right, especially because it was one, a hit and run if she had yeah. been hit by a car. And, and then you're like, oh, my gosh, how could something accidental like this happen? Mm-hmm. Like, why my mom? But mm-hmm. then when you hear instead that it's murder, then it's even, those are even deeper questions. Mm-hmm. Like, how could this happen to my mom? Right. And... Like you said, Allison, because Lucinda's body was moved, many investigators say that critical evidence was lost at the scene of the crime because they do believe that, you know, it had she the scene of the crime was where she was found. Mm -hmm. And her husband expresses those same worries today about how the investigation started, you know, that the scene was never like blocked off it was never secured even the next day to like look for evidence he said like you know it just wasn't what we would think about when we think about a typical crime scene now I mean Mm -hmm. I know we've covered cases where crime scenes weren't investigated properly or even at all in some cases but you know we know the smallest most insignificant clue can really pan out to be a game changer like i can't think off the top of my head, but I know we've had several where, you know, just crime scenes were not treated as such. Right. So basically like the Paige Rinkowski case where her, she's missing, her Mm -hmm. car is abandoned on the side of the road, like keys in the ignition, her shoe in it, and they just tow it off. Yeah, basically. And the investigator Campbell said, quote, they may have lost no telling what kind of physical evidence. I think law enforcement handles things differently now, end quote. And like, um, I would really hope so. Like, yeah, I hope yeah. things are differently. Um, even though the crime scene was like, I guess you could say tampered with, um, the investigators were able to find some pieces of evidence at the scene. And okay, even though what I could find said that they were small pieces of evidence, I couldn't find exactly what they were according to the kentucky standard the evidence could be tested with today's technology and from what i read it hasn't been tested since 2004 so Mm. back in 1990 we just didn't have the technology capabilities that we have now Mm -hmm. so they tested 2004 and they're hoping that they can test it again because you know, things have advanced even more since 2004. Right. So at the scene of another murder that happened around the same time, I didn't find a name. This was just in um, like maybe the Kentucky standard that I read. Um, They actually found a knife 
and it fit the profile of the knife that was used to kill Lucinda. So they think that those could be tied together. Um, Campbell oh, so said, like a serial killer, maybe, or I, I mean, or or these two women are somehow connected. Then yeah, it's just a coincidence that they use the same murder weapon, which I find highly unlikely. But right. Um, Campbell actually said, quote, the blade width would have fit her wounds. The blade length would have fit her wounds and there was blood on it, end quote. But I did read that the quantity of blood was too small to be tested to see that mm. if it was hers. Darn it. No, so close. Campbell, though, still suspects the man who committed the other murder also should be a suspect in Lucinda's case. And I guess that they have spoken to this suspect. I did not see where the suspect was named, but this person refused to talk to investigators at the time and evidence remains too circumstantial. It would be like going mm. on a hunch. Campbell said, if right. we were to so arrest obviously him, we need people to case. come forward. Yeah. Yes, Exactly. And as we mentioned above, you know, Lucinda's DNA was sent out, or not Lucinda's DNA, but the DNA with Lucinda's case was sent out for mm -hmm. further testing in 2004, you know, because DNA had advanced enough that that small amount could be tested. And we know at that time in 2004, some suspects were ruled out, but investigators have refused to specify who was ruled out. And I searched and couldn't find anywhere where suspects were officially named in Lucinda's case. Maybe I just wasn't typing in the correct thing, but I couldn't find anywhere where they had named a suspect. I'm guessing because that DNA sample was such a small sample size that they keep emphasizing that. I wonder if, like you said, there's just not enough. Because, you know, if there's trace DNA or something like that, I mean, that could literally be left by, like, me touching your backpack that you then carrying yeah or like the person who maybe packaged the knife right right and like this is probably a very stupid question but you know i'm not a professional in this but i wonder if things are so small and they're tested like can they can it come to a point where they cannot can no longer be tested like we have a sample and we just run out of dna i'm like, pretty sure the answer is yes mm -hmm. Because I know sometimes they save, like, it'll they'll be like, we need to wait until the technology catches up before we test this. Right. And that alone, I guess, indicates that, yeah, it, that there's a limited, like, if I just have a little snippet of a shirt and mm -hmm. I can only cut so many smaller snippets off of it. Right. To send away for testing. So if it's already a small sample, that could be why they keep waiting. One investigator did say this about the DNA samples the investigating team has. He said, quote, with the change in the tests and the abilities that our lab has, hopefully we can resend some of this evidence from the case to the lab and hopefully can start to steer this case in the right direction. And he wouldn't specify what pieces of evidence may be tested, though he acknowledged that the knife may be one piece of that evidence. Oh, so because they have the knife from the other murder, they could test it to match the DNA from Lucinda's case. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because mm. remember, they said that there was blood on that knife, but it was too small at this time to test. So they're hoping right. that the technology catches up. And while a lot of the evidence may be, like, we may be keeping it hush-hush, investigators really did explore a lot of avenues in Lucinda's case. So I read that they interviewed co-workers. They checked out rumors about a drug deal at the Holiday Inn, but those rumors kind of fizzled out. They interviewed a transient spotted in the area, but concluded, like, there was really no reason to suspect him of doing anything. Um, mm -hmm. In the early stages, they received phone calls and tips. Many of them, you know, were anonymous, but none of them led to much of anything. Um, one investigator said there's a constant revolving door of suspects and people in this case, but yet nothing. Mm. Now, some oddities I do want to mention about the case before we 
talk kind of about, you know, some possible theories. Okay. So one odd thing that I read that happened, and I don't remember exactly where I read this, was about a month before Lucinda's death, the Strange family home had actually been broken into. The burglar was never found. And I read that, mm. like, they just took little insignificant items, like <gasps> nothing of real value. Okay, that's even creepier to me. Yeah, me too. Like, somebody's going to break into my house and steal, like, I don't know, a lampshade and a bag of popcorn. Like, that's more invasive to me than yes. coming in and, like, stealing a TV and a laptop. Yeah, or they're taking, like, a t-shirt out of your, like, dirty yeah. laundry. and Really weird. Yeah. Oh, that creeps me out. Me too. And this one, this second oddity, like, everything I've read in it said it could just be, like, a miss... I don't want to really say communication, but basically a mistake in timestamps, kind of. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you caught it, Allison, but the first report that comes into police mm -hmm. is at 9 p.m., right? That's when they're saying that the 911 call came in by the motorist that was be like believed that there was a body beside of the road, right? And they went up to Jeremy's house. But she began walking at like 8.10 and someone knocked. 7.10? Yeah, sorry. 7.10. And someone knocked on their front door about the body around an hour later. So, oh. like, if the 911 call came in at 9, why was it an hour later? Okay, yes. So, here's my mind is racing. Okay. First of all, I also caught... That you said it was a neighbor who came to tell Jeremy, but it's a passing motorist who's calling 911? Well, I think that's the same person. I think he's called, they're called different things in different articles okay. that I read. Because one okay. calls him a passing motorist, one calls him a passing neighbor. But if he went to go tell Jeremy at 8, what happened in that hour? So I'm wondering if, so I guess the big thing is, which I didn't read definitively. So if the, if he calls 911, then goes and gets Jeremy, which I don't think could have happened if this timeline is correct. Right. Because if he gets Jeremy at eight, Jeremy gets to the body, you know, maybe it's like inconsolable. And then finally he's able to pull himself together at nine o'clock. For them to make the 911 call, maybe. But Jeremy doesn't make the call. Right. I feel like we're missing a piece of information here yeah. that needs to be covered in. We need an update in the, in the news so we can figure out this timeline a little bit better. Yeah, that doesn't. Mm. So maybe a listener out there, since this is a local case, will know something that was missed in news articles because i feel like that is i don't like it doesn't really make me suspicious of jeremy i mean he obviously i'm sure was looked into right because he's the last person to see lucinda right but like that doesn't make me suspicious of him it just makes me feel like that information got mis like jumbled around at some point mm -hmm. so I mentioned briefly, okay, so obviously briefly we have to say that Jeremy was interviewed by police. Um, none of the investigators ever believed that he was the killer. He's never named a suspect. And that's really the, th the theory of Jeremy. Like, we don't believe Jeremy did this. Okay. Um, so I mentioned briefly that drugs were possibly thrown out as like a reason behind this murder. Oh, many, at the Holiday Inn? Yeah, because many people suspected that, like, drugs were related somehow. Rumors spread, right, and this is a small town, that a big drug bust had occurred at the Holiday Inn only about a week before Lucinda was murdered, and she was actually supposedly working the night of this drug bust. Um, there's no information that she was a user, but she was just there, and many people, like, said that she would have been an informant mm. to the police. And, you know, that, if that's the case, then I'm sure. That's what made her a target? Yeah. 
It's like April Pitzer. Yeah. When the police were like, be an informant for us. It'll turn out great. And then. It doesn't turn out great. No. Um, Another thing that was brought up in my research was like, could this have been a planned attack? I mean, I'm not really sure why we would plan an attack on, you know, this woman who seemingly kept to herself and was like a loving mother and wife. But I mean, she did only manage to make it 150 yards away from her house. And she was only gone about 10 minutes before the attack occurred. Oh, so that's info. I didn't know that. Yeah. So So she's found an hour later, but they can tell that the attack occurred that quickly after she left? I mean, I'm thinking that they think it almost has to have because she's not far enough away from her house for it to be any much later. I guess in my head I was thinking she could have been walking back. I guess that's true, too. But, yeah, everything says that it was not, like, she hadn't been out very long. See? Okay. But then I feel like, again, I feel like she would have screamed. And then I just wish Jeremy had not been a deep sleeper or whatever, you know, and that if it happened that soon after that he would have heard it. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about that all the time, the what ifs in Mm -hmm. cases, just like the case last week. I mean, he's driving and he knows she's in that truck and his car breaks down. Right. So, I mean, life sometimes just is really sucky. Yeah. But I mean, we know she goes on these daily walks, so someone could have been waiting for her. The only problem I have with this theory is the fact that she walks at all different times of the day. So, like, is this person just, like, circling her neighborhood waiting for her to come out? Like, mm, I yeah, just feel like I just feel like that's not what would happen. Yeah, it's not like she went at 3.15 every single day. Right, and you would know to, like, be outside the house at... Three o'clock or whatever. It's different times every day. In an interview with WDRB, Jeremy said, and this I thought was kind of like, okay, could this be that he thinks his wife's death could have been a case of mistaken identity, which again, we covered not very long ago. Yeah. What, like last week, right? Was it last week? week. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this theory was only mentioned briefly in that one interview, but I mean, it could be possible. Again, I feel like that far out in the country, if we're that far in this rural area. I hate that word. Y'all already know. I know. I know. That's why I went ahead and said it. But if we're that far out that it's, you know kind of odd that a neighbor would even happen to be passing by because, you know, you're on a 10 acre tract, just you, then I don't feel like this were necessarily just random. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe a random theory. I'm not a big fan of the hit and run because, again, it's not like this is a well-traveled area either, you know, plus, Mm -hmm. obviously, the stab wounds. There's a problem there. Um, I am going to go with the burglar. To me, it's almost like, again, she was targeted for a reason. I don't know what that reason is. I don't know if this was just... If it's linked to that other murder and this is a serial killer, you know, because some Mm -hmm. of them, even some of the ones we talked about last week, they stalk their victims first. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the burglar broke in and stole inconsequential things, like I said, that's invasive. And Mm -hmm. that, it's almost like, to me, they were looking for information. That it was more about finding out about Lucinda than taking anything and I don't know something about that burglary gives me the creeps and it makes me think that it has to be tied to her death I agree with you 
The death of Lucinda turned her family's lives upside down. The family would soon move not long after her death. This was the house Lucinda and Jeremy had built together. They'd planned on staying there for a long time, but sadly, her daughter was too scared to stay in that family home. Lucinda's family has had to learn to live without her. Her grandkids will never get to know her. Her children have gone through so many milestones without their mother. So much love, so many hugs, so many memories just ripped away. It's heartbreaking. Each year near the anniversary of Lucinda's death, her sister-in-law Lucy places an ad in the Kentucky Standard seeking information about the murder and reminding Lucinda's killer about the brutal death they inflicted upon her sister-in-law. One ad read, quote, 24 years ago on March 25th, 1990, you ended the life of Lucinda Strange by stabbing her more than 40 times in the chest and back. You used your knife to make a deep gash to the corner of her mouth. You dealt a severe blow to her head. You left her to bleed to death on Clarktown Road. You robbed family and friends of having the, this loving person to be a part of their lives. You are a cold-blooded murderer. End quote. Even though Bardstown has an estimated population of just over 13,000 people, it has a dark and scary history. It's hard to imagine that in such a tiny town, so many murders have gone unsolved. Lucinda has been dead for over 30 years. In a town that small, someone has to know something. Sadly, even when the family has offered rewards, no calls have came in. Lucinda's case is slowly being forgotten, and we can't let that happen. We have to keep her case in the public's eye. We have to find justice for her and for her family. Investigators from Post for Elizabethtown are asking anyone with information regarding the murder of Mary Lucinda Strange to contact Lieutenant Ezra Stout with the Kentucky State Police Post for Elizabethtown at 270-766-5078 or email him at ezra.stout at ky.gov and that's E-Z-R-A period S-T-O-U t at ky.gov again please like and join us on our facebook page coffee and cases podcast to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode as always follow us on instagram at coffee cases podcast and on tiktok at coffee and cases podcast or you can always email us suggestions to coffee and cases podcast at gmail.com Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. week.